Hello, and thank you for joining me on Perspectives on Psilocybin, Science and Mysticism Surrounding Magic Mushrooms. I am your host, Liam Hart, and what you'll be listening to throughout this podcast is the culmination of my interest and knowledge in this area, which is psilocybin and other psychedelics, since I first found out about the recent research by Roland Griffiths at John Hopkins University during my freshman year. At that point, I was very excited by the idea that as a psychology major, I could potentially be working with and researching psilocybin and these other psychedelic compounds. It is just emerging and is the cutting edge of psychological research that has made its way into the mainstream with more studies being released every year. Now, in my senior year and about to graduate and to pursue a PhD in experimental cognitive psychology, I realize that there is currently no path to working with psilocybin in this field. I want to research the way people think, hence the cognitive psychology. And while there is a lot of conjecture on how psilocybin and psychedelics can expand your mind and provide a path to enlightenment and provide an understanding of mind and consciousness that is normally attained through decades of meditation practice, um, that is initially what got me into this area because that is about how we think. However, as I have realized, I have no idea how to investigate these aspects of consciousness using psilocybin without simply asking people what they experienced and piecing together what it means through the means of surveys, which is not exactly good scientific evidence for much. There may be new experimental methods in cognitive psychology and consciousness research that come about, but for right now, the only defined path, which is still somewhat niche and fringe, is for psychiatrists and other medical doctors. Basically, either people that went to med medical school um, are the people conducting the clinical trials to see what psilocybin may be effective treatment or medicine for. So you have the people that went to medical school and you also have the clinical psychologists or the therapists. And as I have found out, there is a large difference between the experimental psychologists who are performing experiments to investigate how people think and behave scientifically and the therapists and clinical psychologists who are talking to their clients, taking notes, but are not really performing any experiments. And I have made the decision that I am not going to be going to med school and I will not be a therapist. So I don't really have an entrance into the field of psychedelic research. So this podcast is what I see as my official contribution to the work that is being done on psilocybin, since I might not have the opportunity to work on this topic again in the future. It is sort of all I can do to get involved at this point. So first, I'm gonna go through some facts about psilocybin that will sort of get you up to speed on the research and a lot of other things about the substance quickly. So number one is that in recent preliminary clinical trials, psilocybin has shown promise as a treatment for treatment-resistant depression. And these are people with major depressive disorder who have tried everything else, including more invasive therapies such as electroconvulsive therapy. Has also shown promise as a treatment for cancer-related anxiety disorders, smoking cessation, and alcohol dependence. I want to note that while these are preliminary studies with smaller sample sizes and limited generalizability to the normal population, they are showing very promising results. And these results are seen after just one or two doses of psilocybin. In comparison for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, 
which are the most popular treatment for anxiety and depression, you'd have to take a pill every single day. Number two is that psilocybin is non-addictive, seriously, and we'll touch upon this more in the following episodes as well. Number three is that it is nearly impossible to overdose on psilocybin. One review article by Daniel and Haberman in 2017 noted that based upon the amount required for an overdose in rats, it would take about 37 pounds of magic mushrooms to kill a human. Someone would have to be extremely determined to overdose on magic mushrooms in order to do it. And an accidental overdose is extremely, extremely unlikely, basically impossible. Number four is that there are no reported negative effects of psilocybin use in the scientific literature, although there are anecdotal reports of a schizophrenic break or hallucinogen persisting perception disorder, the HPPD, where the visual effects of the hallucinogens remain for years. However, these re reactions are exceedingly rare, and like I said, there's only anecdotal evidence of them. And especially for the schizophrenic break, this is only found to be in people that would likely have had a schizophrenic break at some point in their life, regardless if they had taken psilocybin or not. Number five is that despite all of this promising research and the safety of the substance, psilocybin is a Schedule I drug in the United States. According to the DEA, Schedule I drugs are defined as drugs with no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. Some examples of drugs in this category are heroin, cannabis, LSD, MDMA, and peyote. And for comparison, let's look at some of the Schedule II drugs, which would be fentanyl and other opioids, along with cocaine. So I'm just gonna let that sink in for a second. The drugs of the opioid crisis, fentanyl and other opioids, are classified as being less dangerous and having less potential for abuse than psilocybin and many other psychedelics. That seems interesting to me. However, the state of Oregon did recently vote to legalize psilocybin for therapeutic settings, and multiple cities throughout the nation, such as Detroit, Michigan, and Denver, Colorado, have decriminalized psilocybin. To make it clear, decriminalization means that it is the lowest priority of the police to enforce. Essentially, this means that people can have mushrooms and they will not be charged for criminal activity, but you won't see any psilocybin dispensaries opening like they have for cannabis it's still not legal to sell commercially. For the legalization in Oregon, it is this, essentially the same thing, except that it can only be used in a therapeutic setting. So same thing, you're not just going to be able to buy psilocybin outright, can't just take some home with you. It is only for use in a therapeutic setting with a licensed clinician. While I have been interested in this topic for quite a long time uh, by my standards, I am still by no means an expert on this topic. My knowledge consists of a couple of books that I have read, including How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, listening to podcasts, and also watching talks and lectures that I have found on YouTube. I've also read many of the scientific studies that have been done up to this point, but honestly, since they're so preliminary, there is not much depth to the science yet. They are very specific 
uh, for very specific populations and issues, and they're still very much in the preliminary trials. And while the research is extremely exciting and promising, there's a whole wealth of knowledge that goes beyond the science from the psychonauts and researchers of the past. And I have only just scratched the surface of that. And this stuff is seen as sort of off limits in science when we're talking about the strict scientific research. So you're not gonna see any of the researchers talking about this stuff. They may serve as an inspiration for a clinical trial or for an experiment, but they're not really seen as evidence of anything at all. And I'm referencing the spiritual and the woo-woo, as it is called. And this is notoriously frowned upon in science. And once again, for good reason, I think. There's no way that we can talk about them scientifically and by extension, materialistically in any meaningful way. However, this does not by any means mean that the works of people like Terence McKenna and Stanislav Grof is worthless. It is just not considered scientific under a materialistic framework. In a nutshell, you can think of this podcast as my personal quest to learn more about the history, current research, and the culture surrounding psilocybin and magic mushrooms. Think of me as a sort of psychedelic anthropologist. I attempt to explore both the science and the mystical or the spiritual, hence the title of this podcast, since it really is important, I believe, for the overall picture and progression of psilocybin and how it has been viewed in our society and others. You will be accompanying me on this journey, so I hope that you're ready to hear some exciting research, opinions, and discussions on what I feel is the most pressing and interesting topic of the current times. With this podcast, I aim to contribute to the destigmatization of psilocybin, magic mushrooms, and entheogenic plants more broadly. So, when this topic inevitably comes up at the dinner table, I hope that this podcast will give you a sound basis to talk about it in an informed way. Now that I got the introduction for how I came to do this project out of the way, let's begin to talk about the molecule of interest. Psilocybin, which is the active ingredient found in magic mushrooms, which are mushrooms that are a part of the genus psilocybe. And I'll be introducing it within the context of other psychedelic substances and spiritual practices. It is just one of the many drugs that are labeled psychedelic. You may have heard of others such as LSD or acid, dimethyltryptamine or DMT, which comes in a smoked form, also a smoked form of frog venom, or is drinkable in the form of ayahuasca, which has been used in ancient cultures in the Amazon for centuries. There's also mescaline, which is the active ingredient in the cactus peyote, which is frequently used by Native Americans in their rituals and ceremonies, and was later popularized by the author Aldous Huxley in his work, The Doors of Perception. And there are many other entheogenic plants and analog compounds that have been synthesized in labs that people consider to be psychedelic. In the context of cognitive science and spiritual practices, these substances are seen as one of many strategies of disrupting your normal cognition or your normal way of thinking. Other methods of doing this include sleep and sexual deprivation, fasting, extreme pain, chanting, drumming, shamanic rituals, meditation and other contemplative practices, and it is also seen in near-death experiences. The advantage for psilocybin and other psychedelics, though, 
is that therapeutically, these people may be able to take psilocybin or other psychedelic substances and reliably have one of these disruption experiences in a proper setting. This disruption in your normal way of thinking may allow one to break their framing of reality, which is what is called a mystical experience. This can result in a radical transformation of how one perceives reality and their relationship and participation in reality. This can be boiled down into a concept that you may have heard of, which is reaching a higher state of consciousness. And we're going to define that as the experience of where you experience reality as it truly is. You are connected to the really real. So surveys have found that across cultures, 30 to 40% of the population have had these mystical experiences, and half of the US population reports having had a religious or mystical experience. And by the way, mystical experiences encompasses religious experiences as well. So if you felt that you were connected to God in some sort of way, that would also be classified as a mystical experience. People who've had these experiences report that the world felt more real than their everyday waking consciousness. They report seeing the world with more clarity than ever before and having an increased ability to make sense of things. Instead of rejecting the experience as being not real like we do with dreams, although while we're in the dream, it does feel real, but once we come out of it, we realize that it does not connect to reality in our everyday waking experience. When it comes to these mystical experiences, however, people actually end up rejecting their ordinary state of consciousness as being less real than what they had in the mystical experience. So the mystical experience challenges the normal experience of everyday waking consciousness as being illusory. During these mystical experiences, People feel as if they're seeing through the illusion of everyday waking consciousness and into reality, feeling increasingly connected to reality and having the underlying patterns and nature of reality made salient to them. It is as if they completely understand and are at one with the world. To quote a poem by William Drake that expands upon this and I feel is descriptive of the experience, to see the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower, to hold infinity in the palm of your hand and infinity in an hour. The world is bright, beautiful, and feels alive, and the person having the experience feels as though they are one with everything, experiencing a deep peace and connection to what is profoundly good. In being at one with the universe and the world, they also lose their ego and sense of self. To be connected and one with the world is not to identify as you, but as the entire world. Your name and any identifying information about who you are simply is not important or relevant anymore because there is this connection to the greater whole and this at one mint. The separation between the self and the world dissolves. People also seemingly contradictorily report an increased connectedness to their self and a, prof a profound sense of remembering who they truly are at the most fundamental level. All of this is accompanied by a seemingly constant and immense wave of insight. 
there's this constant feeling of that aha moment or when you connect all of the dots and the overall picture becomes clear to you. This deep sense of being connected to reality is also essential in regarding one's life as authentically meaningful. And whether you believe that a person who has undergone this experience actually perceived reality in a deeper way than normal is kind of besides the point. While I assure you that an argument can be made that we should believe them, that's for another time. What matters is that the person having the experience believes and feels it to be real. And that may result in a radical transformation of their sense of self and their normal life in an attempt to preserve and enhance this deep connection to reality that they felt during this mystical experience. They go through it and they think, I want that to be my every day. And they do what they can to try and reach that higher state of consciousness in everyday reality. And anyways, the experiences are notoriously ineffable. And by ineffable, I mean that they cannot be put into words. Even though people are having these overwhelming senses of insight and realizations, in a sense, they're more felt or embodied than they are able to be put into words. Language just feels like the wrong tool for the job. It is somewhat similar to having an insight about something in your regular life. You can't really explain how it happened. The dots just seem to connect and then you realize the underlying pattern. But it just appears in your mind, like the insight happened to you. You didn't exactly do any work yourself to get it. It just sort of appeared in your mind, seemingly out of thin air. So people cannot explain these experiences using language in any meaningful way, yet they cause what they feel is a fundamental insight about reality and a transformative experience. It is a very deep, personal, and meaningful. There is a parallel to be drawn here between the resulting transformation of these mystical experiences which is a sense of connection to ultimate reality, into the transformation that is seen in people who become a devout follower to a world religion. I'm not saying that these are the same thing, but they both involve a transformation that results from a change in what one believes to be real about the world. If you find this discussion interesting, I highly recommend that you check out John Verveke and his course, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. He is a professor of cognitive science and philosophy at the University of Toronto, and much of what I just talked about I got from his teachings and his YouTube courses, so I would highly recommend him. One metaphor that I find useful in explaining this experience is to that of the grooves that form in the snow when sledding. So imagine you're on a sledding hill, continuously up, going up and down the hill on a sled. Eventually, Grooves will form in the snow, and you will really only be sledding in those grooves. You'll, you'll be hard-pressed to find a way out of the grooves when you're going down the hill. And so you can see the hill as your mind, and the grooves in the snow are the thought patterns and habits that you have in your life that heavily inhabit, that heavily influence your thoughts and behavior. Think of psilocybin or a mystical experience as a fresh blanket of snow that covers these grooves, allowing you to make new grooves to make new patterns of thinking in your mind. 
That fresh blanket of snow is what makes the radical transformation a possibility. However, it is important to note that if you continue to live your life in the same way that you had been before, like you're going down the par same part of the hill, those same grooves in the snow and thought patterns and habits will simply come back. Psilocybin makes the opportunity for change available, but nothing will change in your life if your environment and life stay the same. This is why therapy cannot be separated from the psilocybin therapy. It is a package deal. You may have these grand insights about the universe and personal insights about your life, but if you don't work on integrating those insights into action during your daily life through therapy, a return to baseline is likely and possible. The processing of these experiences through a trained therapist and integration into your life is extremely important in understanding psilocybin as an effective treatment and for it to be an effective treatment at all. So what I just covered about the experience and being at one with the world is a phenomenological account of the mystical experience or higher states of consciousness. And this means this is what people are experiencing subjectively and what they are perceiving and feeling. While I will not be making any claims about what this experience means, I believe that it is important to understand these aspects of the experience before moving forward into the scientific research because it brings a more comprehensive understanding of why and how these experiences may potentially be an effective treatment for many psychological disorders such as major depression, anxiety, eating disorders, PTSD, substance abuse, and possibly others and also how two-thirds of the participants in the first study by John Hopkins and Roland Griffiths rated the psilocybin experience as being the top five, as being within the top five most meaningful experiences of their life. And they related this to either getting married, having a kid, or having a loved one die. So it is very transformative. You are not the same person coming out. And it is just important to keep in mind what the participants of these studies are actually going through and how this transformation may make sense in that context of at one mint. The overarching goal of this research is first and foremost to show evidence that it is that psilocybin is a safe and feasible treatment modality, which has gone quite well up to this point. The research is very promising. The hope for psychedelic and psilocybin therapy though, and in a way what I see to be the ultimate goal and potential of psychedelic therapy is to be able to dial the set and setting to an optimal degree in order to be able to elicit a transformative mystical experience reliably. Right now in the studies, we're seeing about 40% of the participants are having a mystical experience, and that is positively correlated with decrease in depression ratings and an increase in positive mood. However, there is potential for the set and setting to improve and more reliably have these transformative experiences that will help people. So in the presence of all these other compounds that I talked about and these disruptive strategies such as, such as fasting, 
why did I go for psilocybin in particular for the folks of, the, of this podcast? Well, there are a few reasons. The first is that psilocybin has the most research supporting it as a safe and feasible treatment. The others show potential anecdotally, but they have not actually been put up to the test of science in many cases, which it looks like psilocybin is doing a pretty good job of passing. Another reason is that because there is an extremely rich history of psilocybin's use in the indigenous people for rituals and ceremonies as a healing medicine. And this, you can see this in the Mazatec of Mexico. And like I was referencing earlier with DMT and ayahuasca tribes in the Amazon rainforest. It is also feasible to find mushrooms containing psilocybin growing naturally, which just seems so cool to me. It just makes the fact that they are illegal even more perplexing. While the, poison, the poisonous mushrooms that reliably kill people, of course, are fair game. Now, I do not suggest foraging for these mushrooms in the wild because they are extremely difficult to identify and differentiate from the poisonous species, but it is just cool how one of the most exciting areas in psychology literally originates straight from the earth. Another thing is the community surrounding magic mushrooms and mushrooms in general. It is fascinating and growing extremely quickly. This has also been accompanied with a growing interest in Eastern medicine and holistic healing practices, such as the general interest growing towards meditation, yoga, and other spiritual practices on the rise. Some perhaps better than others. I'm looking at you, astrology. This is associated with a rise in the mushroom market and a general move towards food as medicine. Here, magic mushrooms are not necessarily leading the charge. There are many other mushrooms with promising medicinal benefits that can be eaten as a dinner or taken as supplements. Perhaps the most popular of these is lion's mane, which has been found to increase neural connections and strengthen those connections. It's thought that lion's mane may be able to be used as a preventative and or restorative treatment for neurodegenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's. There are others too. Cordyceps has been shown to be effective in increasing power output, lung capacity, and energy, and it's used as a supplement for athletes. Reishi mushrooms are used for sleep and immune system support. Chaga mushrooms have been shown to boost digestion and clear skin through its richness in antioxidants. Turkey tail mushroom is perhaps the most researched mushroom for medicinal benefits and provides a good boost to the immune system. Shiitake mushrooms boost cardiovascular health, health and there are a number of other mushrooms that are being researched for medicinal properties. The demand for these specialty mushrooms is also rapidly rising as consumers look to purchase more foods that are healthy, nutritious, and medicinal. According to transparency market research, the global market for mushrooms is projected to grow by 8.2% by 2024. A final note on why I chose mush psilocybin and mushrooms as a topic, the community around the cultivation and use of magic mushrooms is very unique because it is the only area that I know of that is primarily comprised of amateur scientists, mycologists, that do not have a PhD hanging on their wall. In the upcoming interviews, I also explore the relationship between the amateur mycologist community and the academic researchers. 
how they differ, and other things. So I find everything surrounding mushrooms to simply be more interesting and timely than the other psychedelic compounds. And again, I just want to highlight some of the differences between the subgroups that exist within the people that are interested in psilocybin. Like I've been talking about, you have the academic researchers, of course, who have been conducting the recent research, following strict scientific principles and their methods and their interpretations of research. And then you also have the underground researchers who have not stopped working on this since these chemicals and compounds came to the West. They have worked on the cultivation of mushrooms and synthesizing other psychedelic compounds, guiding clients who are in need of psychedelic therapy using their own supply, and have continued this loose scientific research regardless of legality. You also have the people who are mostly interested in holistic healing methods and entheogenic plants, which are plants that have been used for medicinal and therapeutic purposes. You also have just the general mushroom people who are foraging and growing their own mushrooms. And they are interested in fungi as first and magic mushrooms as just a subset of their larger interest of mushrooms in general. And you also have the psychonauts who are people that explore the states of consciousness that are brought about by the use of psilocybin and other psychedelics. And they use these substances to investigate their own subjective experience of consciousness. As I'm sure you can see, the academic researchers will not really be taking uh, the findings of many of these other groups too seriously. And this is something that we will come back to multiple times in the podcast, the differences and similarities between academia and the non-academic people involved. So in this podcast, for the remainder of the episodes, I'll be talking with experts that are members of all of these areas, except perhaps the psychonauts, or at least we don't talk about that part. The first is a clinical psychologist, Dr. Robin Billings, who has been involved in the psychedelic space since the 60s. The next is my professor at Grand Valley, Professor Glenn Valdez, who is a behavioral neuroscientist and provides his expertise in science and the interpretation of the studies in brain scans. Then there is Dr. Chris Katsones, who is a pharmacist that has been interested in psilocybin and other psychedelic compounds since he entered college 10 years ago. He even presented a research project in his PhD for pharmacology, which talked about the effectiveness of psilocybin as a treatment for cancer patients with life-threatening diagnoses. And when we talk, we actually go through these studies that he presented. Finally, we will be talking with someone who is a part of the underground, if you want to call it that. She's a mycologist and guide who is an Afghanistan veteran, ex-firefighter, and one of the most interesting and inspiring people that I have ever had the pleasure of talking with. She is primarily interested in treating and helping veterans that suffer from PTSD with mushrooms. I am highlighting the different fields that they are a part of because they each view psilocybin and magic mushrooms under a very different lens when it comes to the nature of its use, implications on society, and opinions on policy regulation for use. In the making of this podcast, this is perhaps what I found to be most interesting. 
each have good reasons to hold their views, yet each of their views are quite different and in some cases almost direct opposites of each other, despite being experts in their comparative fields. Each of these experts get their own episode in which we talk about how they came to be an expert on psilocybin, the recent research, directions for future policy and regulations surrounding psilocybin and magic mushrooms, and what they think the future may hold for this substance and potential impacts on society. And with that, I will see you in the next episode of the podcast with, where we will be talking with Dr. Billings, who gives a fantastic overview of the progression of psilocybin from a drug of the counterculture to the research of today, its history of use in the Mazatec ceremonies in Mexico, and also the history of psychedelics in science and in society more broadly.